Well, good morning again. What a joy to be able to have communion. It's been a while, and I long for that. I don't know about you, but think about the word communion. The word means fellowship. Fellowship with each other as one body in Christ, and we fellowship with our Lord. Always we remember His sacrifice. So what a, what a great time around the Lord's table. But if I'd like for you, if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, if you're not already there. And one of the most misquoted verses, I think, in the Bible is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. You'll hear it said in many times, in many ways, that money is the root of all evil. That's actually not what that verse, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, says. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Right? So money by itself is a tool. It's a tool for us, for people to use. Wealth is. It can be used for great things, to achieve great ends for God's glory. It can be misused for all sorts of evil. Like I tell my kids, when it comes to fire or knives or even guns, they're, they're tools for us to use, not toys, because they can be used and misused. So can wealth. But if I ask you all the question, how do you view the rich, I'd probably get a great deal varied responses from the like. You'd, I'd pray, I'm sure that I would uh, I'd get very many different views on the rich. I remember when I was working for a, a small window washing company, I had a discussion with the owner, and we were, we were talking about the positives and negatives of, of socialized health care and medicine. And his basic position was it's not fair that the rich receive better health care than anyone else. My basic reply to him is that the rich are always going to have better health care because they can afford to pay for it, right? And that his basic response, his basic attitude was one of envy, which he didn't appreciate that very much. And I have a buddy, in fact, I have a friend of mine who's a pastor in St. Louis, Missouri, which is in the center of the U.S., if those of you who don't know U.S. geography. And in St. Louis, there's a, there's a world-renowned medical center and hospital there. And my, my friend, my mate, tells me that he meets heaps of Aussies. He goes to the hospital to visit the sick and, and, and work with the hospital as a, as, a, as a chaplain. And he talks with people, but he meets, he meets heaps of Aussies. Rather than waiting for medical treatment here in Oz, they, they fly to the U.S. and they can pay five to $10,000 just in cash and they can get those medical treatments immediately. You see, the rich will always have those opportunities. But we have to be careful that we do not envy or despise the rich just because they are wealthy. I know it's the in vogue thing to do. The media, politicians, they tell us to despise the wealthy and that they should be penalized because of their wealth. In fact, the underlying assumption is that they have their wealth because of some unjust means or injustice. 
But we must have a biblical understanding of wealth. Just because there is disparity doesn't mean that there is injustice. The world would tell us that disparity means injustice, but justice is applying the law equally to every person. If you add an adjective in front of justice, it ceases to be justice from a biblical standpoint. Now, just because someone is wealthy doesn't mean that there is an injustice here. Because the world redefines these terms. The world wants envy. Satan desires for mankind to to envy and be jealous of one another, to be at each other's throats. He's a liar from the beginning. But 1 Samuel 2, verse 7 says, The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low and He exalts. You see, you've got to remember that it is God that determines and distributes wealth as He sees fit. After all, it does all belong to Him, right? We're all stewards of His money, His resources, and we're stewards for just a little while, right? Proverbs 22, 2, the rich and the poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them all. You see, God has designed these inequities in society according to His wise purposes. We're not all going to have the same amount. We're not all gifted the same. I couldn't do what Bill Gates has done. I don't have that knowledge, that intelligence in that area, working with computers. We're not all motivated the same. We're not all self-disciplined the same for hard work. We see, God's providence, He puts wealth in the hands of those who are capable, and they are to work with that wealth. The labor of the poor helps the wealth of the rich, and the wealth of the rich helps to employ and aid the poor. This is the ideal situation in society as God has so ordained it and orchestrated it. The common humanity of each should make them regard each other as fellow human beings created in the image of God and not despise and envy one another. Now, but the key factor, though, is we live in a, what, sinful world, okay? Unfortunately, with this fallen world that we live in, it's corrupted by sin, and sin affects every relationship. Sin has affected the rich and that they have a, a greedy pursuit of wealth, those ungodly rich. And he's, sin has affected the poor and that they have a greedy pursuit of wealth. You see, God's perfect design is polluted and corrupted and wealth is misused by those who have it rather for to seeking to benefit others. Wealth is, wealth is used for selfish ends by the ungodly, and used even to hurt others. And James addresses that, and that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to be looking at the the ungodly or misuse of wealth by the ungodly. You see, God is not blind to the misuse of His resources. And James here, in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, calls out the ungodly. 
calls out the ungodly rich and for the misuse of their riches. Because they think, they thought that having financial wealth or having financial means meant that they have security. But James tells him that their wealth is not secure and will do nothing to help them in the day of judgment. You see, he lays out this warning, this woe, and we we spoke at great depths of that woe, of the miseries that are coming upon the ungodly rich last week. The fires of hell, their, their doom is sure. And if you remember, James is writing this section because the ungodly rich, the rich of the world, come into the assembly from time to time. We know that in James chapter 2. Right? James chapter 2. He talks about the wealthy coming into the assembly and how there's favoritism at times. So we know that James is addressing these ungodly wealthy and he's calling them to understand their fate and repent. But he's also addressing this to believers. He's addressing this to to us as well as these in the first century. And he wants us to, one, be comforted, knowing that the ungodly wealthy who mistreat others will face a reckoning. That God is just. And we can be comforted by that fact that though it seems like the wealthy and the powerful get away with so much in this life, there will be a reckoning. But James also wants us to understand that we should not envy or emulate rich in their attitudes towards wealth. And so what we're going to be dealing with this morning is is James is laying out, verses 2 through 6, the reasons for the devastating judgment upon the ungodly that he mentions, the the ungodly rich in verse 1 of chapter 5. And he wants us to be aware of the ungodly attitudes of the rich they have towards wealth so that we would not emulate them and envy them. And James wants us to be aware of the selfish hoarding of wealth. He wants us to be aware of the gaining of wealth unjustly. He wants us to be aware of the extravagant use of wealth and beware the ruthless acquisition of wealth here in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. So let's go ahead and look at the text, and then we'll dig in and see James's point this morning. Chapter 5, verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl, for your miseries are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you, will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and in a life of wanton pleasure, and you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man, and he does not resist you. So James, first of all, when he's addressing the wealthy, he says, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. When he he talks about wealth, you need to understand in the first century that wealth meant more than just having gold and silver. 
right? Anything that, that gave these wealthy security was considered wealth, even though it was a, a false security. James exposes the fragility, the temporal nature of wealth, because wealth was measured in, in grain and barley and, and produce that you had. You considered wealthy because you owned fields and the, and the produce and product of the land. If you had a lot of, of, of product that you could sell, that you could use as a measure of wealth. James talks about wealth being clothing, and we'll get more of that in a little while. But clothing was a measure of wealth because most people only had a couple sets of clothing. Many of the poor only had a, an under tunic and a, and a robe, or the Romans called it a, a toga. But it was just a, a robe that they would put on on top of their, their work clothing. And then wealth was actually also measured in gold and silver. So wealth was measured in many different ways. I read the other day that one thing that is excel, selling extremely well worldwide, especially in the U.S. and even in Australia, is underground bunkers. Because of the, the calamitous nature of the times that we live in, and the, and the huge uncertainty of people's lives, and they have no real hope, they're putting hope in their wealth. And they're, being, they're thinking that they're secure by buying and building underground bunkers. In case of war, terrorism, pandemics, wildfires and the like, all these things, they're, they're building these shelters. In fact, I read one company has experienced a 400% increase and if you go on their website, which I did just to kicks and giggles, it says, where will you go when calamities hit? Well, the, the ungodly of this world, where will they go? Right? They believe they're secure through their own means, their own wealth. And they trust in those things. But no matter how big your bunker is and how far underground, you can't escape God's wrath. But what about for us as believers? Psalm 46.1 says that God is our refuge, our strength, and our help in times of need. What do we have to fear? But James says when he, when he deals with the rich, he says, Your riches have rotted, your garments have become mothing, and your gold and silver have rusted. He first of all deals with the, their wealth that is rotted, it's decayed. Their wealth has decayed, it's become worthless because everything decays. And, he, and he's talking specifically here about the grain that they have, the barley harvest, the figs, the grapes, the olives that were all products of Israel in the first century. They were, what they were doing, they were hoarding. They were hoarding foodstuffs. They were building bigger barns to, to supply or to, to meet all the supply of grain that they had. They were hoarding. They were, they were hoarding their, their foodstuffs. But in reality, that food was rotting in the ground, is rotting in the barns. It was worthless because everything rots. We try to extend that process, right? Through refrigeration. Praise the Lord for that. We can buy produce, and my wife sticks bread in the fridge which I don't like, but she does it. She sticks bread and it lasts longer. Who likes cold bread, right? So, you know, she, but it lasts longer, right? Think about Luke. Luke chapter, two, uh, Luke chapter 13, 
sorry, Luke chapter 12, verse 13, let me get the right verse, said, someone came up to Jesus and said, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist in his possessions. You see, the thing about the wealth that we have, or the wealth that they had, is the, they, they hoarded it. They greedily hoarded their wealth rather than using it to help others or selling it as, as excess in the market. They wanted a bit of security when they could have used that wealth to help their fellow men and women, their countrymen. And so they hoarded that wealth and it rotted. It rotted in the ground. It rotted in their barns. It was not used. And honestly, as we see the progression of their attitude, you even wonder if they rather have had that wealth rot than to use it to help their fellow men. But James says, and he says, it's, it's unused. Basically, these are unused possessions. They're, they're hoarding. And he says, look, not only will your, your riches, your wealth be rotting, but he says your garments have become moth-eaten. And remember, garments were considered a means of wealth. Most common people didn't have but one or two changes of clothing. And, they, and like I said, they would take the outer tunic off and they would work. And then they would have the outer tunic. It's a robe to keep them warm. Well, the rich would take their robes and they would have them dyed in purple or red or blue. And, and that was an expensive process. It was an indulgent process. And they would have these robes, what, embroidered. And they would be beautiful robes, and they would, they would pass these robes on to their family members as heirlooms. And they would wear these, and it would, it would flaunt their wealth, because they would be clean, and they would be flashy. You wore garments that were brightly colored, you were considered wealthy. How many of you would be considered wealthy right now with your bright colors? They show off their wealth. You see, Acts 20, 33 says, Paul says, I have not, in talking to the Ephesian elders, he said, not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. Have you ever been into a hoarder's home? Been to a home where somebody is, is hoarding things? I've been in, been in a hoarder's home. Back when I had the opportunity to do wash windows when I was in seminary in many different homes, but I've been in a hoarder's home where there's a, there's a trail. They have to make a trail to walk through because there's books and papers and anything that they might or could think of that they could possibly use for any situation in, they could ever think of in their life, because it comes back to fear, right? Any situation they might could use, they're, they're stacked, everything's stacked everywhere. You see, these rich, they, they were placing their security in the things that they had. But we know in reality, it's not financial security, it's financial insecurity. Because any of that thing, any of those things can be taken away at a moment's notice. And in fact, James actually says that your, your riches have rotted and your garments have what? Have become moth-eaten. 
So all of these fine embroidered dyed cloaks and robes that they have sitting in their closets are being eaten by moths. All their riches are feeding moths instead of feeding men. You think about clothing that's moth-eaten, so the moth worms eat the clothing. It's worthless. Nobody wants to wear a moth-eaten coat or pant or shirt. Have you ever had that happen to any of your clothes? But James says, look, not only has your, your riches rotted, your garments moth-eaten in verse 3, your gold and your silver have rusted. Now, there are some, those that don't want to accept the authority of God's Word. They, they like to try to point out inconsistencies in the Word of God. will say, well, well, this just shows there's an error because gold and silver, especially gold, doesn't rust. But the word here in the Greek is corrode. And people would say, well, gold doesn't corrode. So it must be an error. But they forget when this was written. And it was written in the first century A.D., and they would mix gold and silver with other, what, other metals to make coins. We do that today. Right? In fact, I looked up the Australian gold coin, and it's 92% copper, 6% aluminum, and 2% nickel. There's no gold in it at all. And it's a gold, it's a gold coin, right? They would mix their gold and silver with other metals. And, that, and so you would actually find, and they found Roman and Greek coins that have rusted, have corroded because of the other metals that are mixed with gold and silver. So James is saying, look, you've hoarded all of these things. You've hoarded these, this, this produce, this grain, and it's rotten. It's just, it's going to waste. It's worthless. Your clothing that you're so proud of is being moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver, all these things that you're, you're hoarding are just corroding. They're wasting away, serving no purpose. You see, all of these things, these, the idea of, of unused wealth, of hoarding wealth for security, James is condemning the rich for that. He's condemning the rich and, he, and he's telling them, you're finding your hope and security in something that is temporal, that is temporary. They were only thinking about themselves and their immediate family. They didn't care about anyone else. They took pleasure in having things, and they kept those things tightly in their grasp, sharing with very few. But James continues, and he says, look, that rust, that corruption will be a witness against you in verse 3, and will consume your flesh like fire. It is the last days that you have stored up treasure. So he's talking about the unbelieving rich again. Not all rich, because we know there were believers that had wealth. James addresses those in chapter 1 of the book of James. But he's saying, look, the, for you unbelieving rich, these, this corruption, all of this corruption will be a witness. He personalizes that in the sense of a courtroom. And the wealth that they accumulated that is rusting and corroding and being moth-eaten in a trial against them will be used as a witness. And all of that corrupted wealth will be, will be dumped before them. And God will point to all the wastes, all the misused resources that could have been used for other things. You see, their, their hoarded wealth showed their attitude, their heart attitude towards the poor. Showed their heart attitude 
in their self-indulgence. Because they are culpable for their sin of how they have used what God has given them. James says very particularly, he says very vividly, that that wealth, that the idea that just as it's being corroded, that corrosion will be transferred to them. And he says, you will be consumed and it will consume your flesh. The idea we talked about last week as we talked about hell and judgment as the worm does not die and it constantly eats the flesh, but it's never satisfied and your flesh is never consumed. The fire that doesn't go out and that burns and burns. You could imagine a prosecutor in, in all of those courtroom TV shows that you've probably seen. A prosecutor brings out the, the bloody knife of the murderer and he, and he lays it on the table and the blood on the knife bears witness to the sin, to the misdeed. John Calvin says, God has not appointed gold for rust, nor garments for moss, but on the contrary, He has designed them as aids and helps to human life. And he said, they've stored up treasure. Look at that. They stored up treasure for the last days. They, they hoarded for themselves alone, and in reality, all they stored up for themselves is wrath. Now we know that after Jesus' death and resurrection, His ascension, we've entered the last days, and the last days are imminent. We expect His return at any moment. Maranatha, O come Lord Jesus. James' point is you've stored up this wealth thinking your life is secure, but all you've done is stored it up for judgment. And all that wealth that you've misused and that you've hoarded for yourself, all that wealth will be worthless in the day of judgment. It's useless. James says that the ungodly rich, they show a, a sense of self-sufficiency and the desire of security apart from God. They hoard up wealth for all the future. They think about all the what-ifs. What about this? And what about this? And I need money for this happens. And I need money for this if this happens. And, and they think and they store and they, they hoard and they, they think about all these things, but they haven't identified a certain calamity that's coming. And that's judgment. You see, Psalm 49 says that the rich man cannot buy his redemption. He must cease striving for that. He can't, even, can't buy himself his redemption or his brother. It's useless. And when he faces judgment, it will be useless. You see, there, there's eternal consequences. Ezekiel 7, verse 19, and then talking about the judgment upon Israel, it says, They will throw their silver into the streets, and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and their gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. Now, believers, what, what about us? What are, what are something, what's something that we can learn when we think about the judgment that awaits the ungodly? Well, first of all, we can know that 1 Corinthians 4.1 says that we are servants and stewards of God. We're, we're stewards of all the resources that God has given us. And as a steward, it is, is required of a steward that they be what? Faithful, a faithful steward. Because everything that you have, everything that I have, everything that we have is given to us by God. 
It is His. It's not ours. I teach my kid that, kids this fact. When they argue about their toys and they say, no, that's mine and that's mine, and I say, no, whose is it really? No, well, it's, it's God's. It's God's. And He expects us to, to enjoy it, but He share it as well. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, we, we do all to the glory of God. That's our mindset and our, our motivation. And know that there's going to be an accountability. Luke 12, 48, for everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrust much of him, they will ask all the more. There's an accountability. And lest you, you, you forget or you, you think that we don't have a lot, think about how many pairs of clothing you have, multiple cars, we're able to stay in nice homes with heat and air con. We have this beautiful church building that God has given us. God has given us much. But we're to store up treasure in heaven, right? God wants us to use what you have been given with the right heart. Money and wealth is a tool that you to be used or that you to use to build God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is being built through His church and to help others in need. That's why He's given us wealth. Take care of our families. We're to enjoy, but we're, we use it in service to Him. Really, the real question is, where do you spend your money? Shows where your heart is. 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you want to flip with me really quickly there, I'll show you an important passage. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll look at verse, let's see where to start here. It's all good. Uh, let's see. Let's, uh, let's look at verse 8. Okay, chapter 6, verse 8. Now let's start at verse 7. For we have brought nothing into the world, and see, we cannot take anything out of it either. Verse 8. If we have food and covering, these shall we be content. So God wants you to use what resources that you've been given to what? To meet your need of food and covering. Okay? Home, clothing, food. All right? Now then, skip down to verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So we're to enjoy the wealth. Don't feel guilty for using the wealth that God has given for, for an aspect of self-enjoyment, okay? And then look at verse 18. But instruct them what to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. That's a picture of how we should use our wealth, brethren, right? Meet our needs. We are to enjoy it, but to be generous with it. All right, so James has said that we need to beware of selfish hoarding. We also need to be aware of gaining wealth justly. Look at verse 4. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting had reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. So James warns us, and he's warning these believers, for, sorry, these unbelieving rich, first of all, to beware of gaining wealth unjustly. He says, behold, he's drawing their attention to their business practices. It's, it wasn't shrewd business dealings. It was unjust gaining of wealth. He says that they've what? 
said the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, what have they done? They've, they've withheld wages. They, and literally the word means kept back something that was due. And he identifies them personally. He says, you did this. You. James is confrontational. Stealing wages from their workers is clearly against God's law. And by the way, those, those wages were justly earned. It wasn't like they did a bad job, James, in his condemnation. It wasn't like these workers were lazy. These were hard-working laborers who didn't receive what they were promised. Right? In those days, the, the harvest time in the spring, there would be the spring harvest. And that would be barley and some wheat in the coastal areas. And, and then usually after every harvest, there was a feast. And they'd have Feast of Unleavened Bread, also called Passover. And so it'd be a time of celebration. And then in the summer, there's the Feast of Trumpets when the, the olives and the grapes would come into fruit. And then at the end of the year, in the, in the autumn months, there was the Feast of Tabernacles. And so there was a great celebration around the harvest time. And you could imagine these workers, how can they properly celebrate a feast and have joy when they've been robbed of what they need to survive? In fact, Leviticus 19.13 says, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. In other words, if somebody works all day, you need to pay them at the end of the day for a day's work. You shouldn't keep the money all night until the next day because you don't know if that person needs that resources or need those resources to live, to survive, to feed their families. Deuteronomy 24, 14, you shall not oppress a hard, excuse me, a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of the sojourners who are in your land in your towns. And God even sets up protections for those Gentiles that are going to be traveling through and may work in the fields of the, the, the Jewish landowners. Right? If you were traveling through, we're all pig-eating Gentiles in here. You would be protected. You have protections in the law against injustice. When I was a teenager, I worked for a, a, a gentleman and he owned a, a, a small business and we were to get paid every fortnight on Saturday. And every once in a while, he would forget to pay us, forget to write checks for us. And we would have to get our checks on the following Monday. And there were times when I needed that money for that weekend, had things planned. You see, a heart that makes wealth an idol has little thought and little love for others. It's all about what makes you happy and what helps you to gain more by whatever means. And this, this increases theft. It's very simple. But James says, look, he says this wealth, it, it cries out. James personifies this wealth. And he says that the wealth continually crowds, cries out for justice. The wealth that this man has hoarded and robbed from, the, from those laborers is crying out to God for justice. It should be in someone else's hands, not the wealthy landowner. It's kind of a picture of, of Abel's blood. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, God says to Cain, What have you done? 
The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Cries out for justice. James says that the cries have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Some of the translations have Lord of hosts, but the idea is that, that God is majestic in His awesome title and that He is holy and that He's powerful and that He is on the side of those that are mistreated. He is on the side of those that have been committed, that have had injustice committed against them. He is powerful enough, God is, to break the power of their pressures and He will punish their sins. Isaiah 1.9, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a very small remnant, we would be like Sodom and like Gomorrah. Prophet Isaiah speaking to Israel or about Israel. See, these ungodly rich had defrauded their workers and some of them were Christians in the assembly. Because James says in chapter 2 that the rich have thrown some of them in prison. And the rich had become callous to anyone or any plight but their own. And in the first century A.D., credit was not ready available. And so the poor were dependent upon these daily wages. You could put yourself in their shoes of the poor and say that these, these men that are working, these women that are working, they, they need this money to feed their families. And without that, that money from their daily work, they would not have bread to put on the table to feed their children. And now that exploitation by powerful people is not new. And a worker can be cheated in a number of ways. They, they, would, they could cheat by not paying the right amount per hour or per day. Pay them less than they deserve or, or that the law says they should. They could pay them for only a portion of the work done, claiming that they were, they were lazy or they didn't like what they had done. And Well, I'm not going to give you the full thing I promised. I'm going to give you part of it. They could do the old trick where, you know what, I know I owe you this much money, but I have to deluct all your supplies, and you know, you drank some water out of my urn, and, and you know what, uh, that pot you, you, know, you tipped over over there, I'm going to deduct all of that stuff from your pay. They take advantage of those who don't know the law, or desperate. You see that? See that here? See that in the United States and other countries? Undocumented immigrants, illegal aliens, those who are here and they shouldn't be and they can't really say anything, they have no power and, and you pay them less than the law requires so that you can reap the benefits. But believers, there's, there's eternal consequences. God is just and the Lord of Sabaoth will execute judgment. Now, for us as believers, we shouldn't emulate them in their acquisition of wealth. Don't defraud those that you owe money to. Let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. If you enter in a contract with someone, you need to see that contract done, even if it means you take a loss. Right? We do what is right, always, according to God's Word. Right? Don't, don't default on things that you've agreed. One of the trends in the United States, and I'm not sure here in Australia because I haven't run across this particular incident, but in the States is that people will run up very high credit card debt. 
And then in the States, you can declare bankruptcy, quote-unquote. And you go into bankruptcy protection, and, and as part of that protection, a lot of your debts are consolidated, and a lot of it is wiped out, and, and you have to repay that. And you have time that you have to repay it, but you don't have to repay everything. So you can rack up a twenty, thirty thousand dollars credit card debt, go into bankruptcy, and maybe only have to pay back four or five thousand. Don't default. If you've borrowed money, you need to pay it. Right? It's called having integrity. We don't, we, if we think of, I can spend money and I can I have these credit cards and I can run them up and then I don't have to worry about paying them back, we're no different than gaining wealth unjustly because credit is borrowing money. It's not ours. I'm not saying that credit is necessarily bad. Right? We, we buy houses and most of us don't have $500,000 sitting in the bank. Right? It's not bad necessarily to, to buy a home, something that goes up in value with credit. But you need to pay the things back that you've agreed to pay. But think about those around you. You need to also think about with your wealth that God has given you. Remember, as a steward, that Philippians 2 says, you are not merely to look after your own personal interest, but also the interests of others. How can you have the things that you have when somebody else that you know needs help? You should be asking, what are ways that I can serve others with the wealth that I've been given? After you've looked after your families, and put, and, and not say, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's wrong to save there's a difference between hoarding and saving, right? We all need to have something for emergencies. But we're talking about a, a, just a, an abundance over and beyond. What do you do with the excess? God has not called you to spend it frivolously. And the other thing we need to say, too, because most of us in here aren't rich and we don't own businesses, is that you should not gain wealth unjustly by defrauding your employer by laziness, right? God has called us, Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, so whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Work's not always going to be fun and rewarding, but God provides work through we can provide for our families and use that wealth for God's glory. So you defraud others and you gain wealth unjustly if you're lazy at work, you agreed to work for a certain amount of time for a certain wage, and you are not doing that, and you're defrauding someone. We don't often think of it that way. James continues in verse 5, and he says, Beware of the extravagant use of wealth. He says, You have lived luxuriously on the earth. You've led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. The word luxuriously there means a, a soft extravagance. They're indulging continually in the, in the pleasures of the flesh. It's, a, it's the high society and high style that they were a part of. They wanted to be part of that society and wanted to flaunt their wealth, and they indulged. And whatever they wanted, they, they delighted in, they paid for. Jesus actually describes that sort of person in Luke 16, 19, when he was speaking about the rich man and Lazarus. And he says, now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. You see, James says, look, you, you've lived luxuriously on this earth. Their, their focus was exclusively on the things of this earth. What can make them happy? 
right? It's not our goal in life to live to make ourselves happy. We live what? For the glory of God. The ungodly show their hearts. You see, wealth is to be used for a purpose. As I've said before in 1 Timothy, we're to, we're to meet needs. We're to, we're to enjoy aspects of it, but we're also to be generous with it. Brethren, we just remember that everything we have, everything that we own has been given to us. We are but stewards, caretakers of God's wealth, and it to be used correctly, not frivolously, and not merely to indulge our own pleasures and our own whims. We're to use it to build God's kingdom, build His church. We're to use it to help those in need and to take care of our needs. You see, the thing about these wealthy, ungodly wealthy is they're short-sighted. They only see what's in front of them. But as believers, we need to be far-sighted. We need to look farther beyond this life and into the next. But James also says we, we should beware of the extravagant use of wealth in that said they've lived luxuriously, but they've, they lived with wanton pleasure, the extravagant self-indulgence. Wanton means an unrestrained, willful lack of regard for what is right and those around you. It's the idea of the prodigal son who took his part of the inheritance and, and, and spent it on, as some translations say, wild living. I think the King James says wild living. I have to ask Greg later. Or reckless living. And he says, not only that, you fatten your hearts. It's an indulgent lifestyle that, that shows that they're, they're gorging themselves. And this is the idea of a picture of the, when they would fatten up an animal to slaughter. They would fatten up this animal. And, and because they didn't have refrigeration systems, they would have a huge party. And we'd all be invited. Where I grew up in eastern North Carolina, we would do this with, with pigs and hogs. And a person would, would slaughter a hog and, and we'd invite, they'd invite everybody in the community and we'd have a, have a huge party. It'd be a pig, we call them pig pickings. You'd pick parts of the pig. The whole pig would be roasted minus the parts that they were going to save and they were curing for later use. And that was the same idea here in the first century. And so he said, they're, they're, you're fattening your heart. He's, he's picturing themselves as the animal. They're the fat animal, and all their self-indulgence is nothing more than getting them ready for the day of slaughter. What a vivid picture. And they can't escape, and just like a, a fattened animal that's ready to be slaughtered, they don't know the day when, the, when they're going to the slaughterhouse. And you know what? There'll be no spider named Charlotte to save them on that day. There you go for a literary reference. So believers, not only should we be aware of that extravagant use of wealth and understand that God has given us wealth, we can enjoy the things that God has given us. Don't feel guilty, but also evaluate your life. I can't do it for you. Evaluate your heart and what God has given you and ask yourself, what are you doing with your excess? Are you using it to build God's kingdom, building up, storing up eternal treasures for yourself? Are you using it for self-indulgent pleasures? Where's your heart? And the final thing that James says is, 
He says for us to beware of the ruthless acquisition of wealth. Look in verse 6. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man, and he does not resist you. You see, the, the rich were, were using the law and unjust judges to get what they want. They, they'd bring the poor to court, and the poor couldn't afford an advocate, and they couldn't fight for themselves. And, and this is injustice because the law was unequally applied. They were using legal means to get what they want. It was injustice. And look at this, he says, and you put to death the righteous man. And honestly, there's two ways to really look at this. The first way to look at this is there was, it was actually murder through injustice. They wanted what the poor man had. Maybe he had a small piece of a field or he had some piece of property or some, something that they wanted. And they would use the criminal courts to have the man condemned to death to get what they wanted. See, they become so calloused and so self-focused that they didn't care how they acquired wealth. And all that mattered is they got the wealth. They were ruthless. What began as insensitivity to the plight of the poor has become an indifference to murder. The wealth, the idol in the heart corrupts. It's the love of money. It's the root of all sorts of evil. Or it's, the other way to look at this is it's murder through deprivation. Remember, they're robbing the wages of, of the workers. And you can imagine that worker not receiving his wages. And, he, and he's supposed to go and get those wages and buy some food for his family. And he can't. And the man's kids die because of malnutrition. Or the man, because he's not doesn't have enough resources to live. He becomes sick and he dies. So who's the cause of this man's death? You could say, well, he died because of sickness. But the reality is he died because the rich and godly refused to pay him his wages. They were the direct cause of his death. Either way to look at it is acceptable because the, the rich are, are the cause of the death of this righteous man. Reminds me of the Christmas carol in Ebenezer Scrooge when he has two benefactors come to him and asking for money for the poor. And he says, aren't there plenty of prisons? And they're like, well, yeah. Well, aren't there plenty of workhouses that the poor can go and work and earn a living? And they say, well, yeah. And he says, well, I give money to them. And they respond and they say, well, not all the poor can, can go to those places. And the many would, would rather die than go to those places. And he says this. He says, if they would rather die, then they had better do it. And decrease the surplus population. See, that's the attitude of the rich. They're so self-indulgent. The ungodly rich that they, they want what they want and they don't care how they get it. Brethren, heaven forbid that, that we act that way. Heaven forbid that we're so focused on wealth and what we can gain in this life that, that we don't care and we develop a callous attitude toward those around us. And look at, the, look at the righteous man. Look what he does. What, a, what, a, what a, uh, a pattern for us to emulate. He says what? He does not resist. It's the constant pattern of the, rich, of, excuse me, the righteous man's life. He's in complete submission to Christ in every aspect of his life. That's hard. Matthew 5, verse 38. Jesus says, you have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. 
But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if he wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's the example for us. 1 Peter 2, 23, and speaking of Jesus, Peter says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. You see, our response to suffering at, at the hands of, of ungodliness, of wickedness, of the powerful and rich in this world, is to be one of non-resistance. We are to trust in God who will judge. He's the Lord of Sabaoth. That's a hard thing because it's not what comes, what, natural to us. It comes from those that are spirit-filled that are letting the Holy Spirit dominate and control their lives. Brethren, the right response to someone who's taking advantage of you is trust the Lord. You do have the right and understand me to, to have the government help you. God has given the government, 1 Peter 2.14, for the protection of the innocent and the punishment of evildoers. You have the right to go to the government, so don't misunderstand. But what if you're living in a country with a corrupt government? Or a government that, that's tyrannical. What do you do? Well, the answer is you follow Christ and you follow His example. Brethren, be comforted in knowing that God's going to judge. God's going to judge the ungodly. God's going to judge those who mistreat others using their power and wealth. You also need to remember that you cannot serve two masters, right? You will what? You'll love the one and hate the other. You cannot serve as your master the Lord Jesus Christ and your wealth. So we have to beware of the ruthless acquisition. I saw an article a few days ago which reported on a survey of 38,000 people. So it was a good size of survey in 38 countries around the world. And what they found, that there's a quote-unquote God gap between the relatively rich and poor countries. Those in wealthier countries say that belief in God is not necessary for people to have good morals. While those in poorer countries believe the opposite. For example, Kenya... The country with the lowest GDP, 95% of respondents said that God is necessary for a person to, to have good morals. Sweden, the richest, said only 9% said that God is necessary. The richer tendencies of the richer a nation gets, the more what? Right? Secular rise they get and the less religious they get. And none of you are surprised. After all, what, is, what does James say in... Chapter 2, verse 5, is that the poor of this world are chosen to be rich in faith. Brethren, James is addressing these ungodly rich that are snug as a bug in a rug, to use a southernism. They trust in their wealth for security. They, they, they have a, a future they believe is not uncertain. They don't care about anyone else. 
They use it for self-indulgent pleasures. and they, they use their wealth for their own ends. But be comforted knowing that the rich, the ungodly, the powerful of this world will face accountability. But also, we need to make sure that we do not emulate or envy the rich world. Remember, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Remember that everything that you have that you own, quote-unquote, has been given to you by God, and it is God's. You are a steward managing God's resources, managing God's property, managing God's wealth on this earth. It's His stuff. He wants you to use it to meet your needs. He wants you to enjoy it, but He wants you to be generous with it. Use it to build His kingdom, to help those in need. Brethren, remember that your security is not in your wealth, but in Jesus Christ. Run to Him, love Him above anything and everything else. Look full in His wonderful face, and what the things of this world will grow strangely dim. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that... Wow, we we've, thank you that we can see James's words and his confrontation for the rich, and we're thankful, Lord. We're thankful that you are just. And though it seems that so many in this world, the rich and powerful, get away with so much evil, but you hear the cries of they, they the cries of those that they've murdered. You you hear the cries of all those who have been committed or have committed injustice against them. Lord, we thank you and we're comforted by that fact, knowing that you are just and we trust in you that if we don't get justice in this life, there will be justice in the next. Lord, we also are confronted by our own idols at times where we look around and we make the things of this world our focus and our desire above everything else. Let's help us to remember not to Indulge and desire to indulge in the flesh, to not acquire wealth ruthlessly or ungodly, but to not hoard wealth, but to use it for your glory. Lord, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives, and we pray that you would be glorified. In Christ I pray. Amen.